This is Super Women in Science. I'm Corden, and I'm a music therapist. And I'm Nicole. I'm a neuroscientist. We will be discussing the past, present, and future of women and non-binary people in science. Highlighting a variety of scientific endeavors, as well as issues in science today. Today, we're talking about data visualization. Welcome back to our 16th episode. Uh, We're really excited to share this episode with you today and talk all about data visualization. So to start our discussion today, Cord and I are really excited to talk about uh, something kind of parallel to the field of data visualization, but ways of getting information out uh, through non-traditional measures. Um, So one of these popular measures right now in um, the science art and science communication world is zines. Um, So Zine is an independent publication made by individuals for the expression of diverse voices and activism, or the distribution of art, storytelling, and creativity. So it's an effective way to present accessible data and synthesize the findings and feelings that people discover through data collection, through analysis, through the scientific um, method, and, you know, art life. And what I really love about zines too uh, is that they are often very handcrafted, you know, like it's a very personal, like either you're creating it through photocopying or like drawing on it. And it's very kind of you're connected to the story as well. Yeah. And I find it's a really great way to easily disseminate information to the public, um, which is something that, you know, obviously we both really believe in as well. Uh, another reason that we like zines so much is because um, I actually um, made one in my master's thesis. So the uh, method that I used is a heuristic self-inquiry, which one of the steps in the process is a creative synthesis of either the data, the analysis, the whole method that you went through. So I decided to create a zine. Like I mentioned earlier, I really love zines because they easily disseminate information to the public. And that's something that as an artist and a researcher, I believe in really deeply, as well as a scientist and, you know, a science communicator, I guess, is what we're doing now, too. So, (laughs) yeah. I love that you made a zine for your master's. I think that's incredible Um, and so inspiring. I want to do that, too. (laughs) Thank you. And I guess that my master's thesis will be linked below so you can find the zine if you're interested. So we also wanted to highlight a couple different uh, science-related zines that we found online that are really inspiring and really cool. And so the first one was a group of PhD students who created a zine um, in response to sexual misconduct. And so the grad student zine uh, was in order to try to improve departmental culture. So the zine is called Lab Notes on Power in Academia. Like Nicole said, it's created by a group of PhD students um, led by Christy Sharma who wanted to get together and discuss um, sexual misconduct and the departmental culture around it after a former professor in their department was faced with sexual misconduct charges at three different universities that he worked at. The authors also note in the zine, they say, the zine isn't about any individual villain. Um, And they intentionally do not name the professor which uh, committed all the sexual misconduct. They say it isn't about sex, it isn't about women's issues, it's about being aware of the system of power that we are a part of. And so then they go on and really creatively show through different poems and texts and emails, uh, just starting a conversation. Um, So the zine is just a really great way of, you know, getting that information out in a different uh, kind of manner. And so we've linked it in our show notes and you can go and download the PDF for free and there's a free printable version. Yeah. Another really great group of people who are doing amazing work with zines and disseminating scientific information is Two Photon Art, created by Christine Liu and Tara Johnson. 
Mm-hmm. And so Two Photon Art, led by the incredible Christine and Tara, creates so many art projects of science enamel pins, uh, but they also started out making some zines and different prints, which are really, really cool. Um, and one in particular that we wanted to uh, highlight today was called the Neuroscientist Portrait Project. The Neuroscientist Portrait Project is a zine that looks at the lives of neuroscientists inside versus outside of the lab, with an emphasis on highlighting the stories of those who are traditionally underrepresented in the sciences. So it was created by Christine and sponsored by Berkeley Neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And just an excerpt from the zine, um, which really kind of represents the project. Uh, So Christine has said that, All research scientists share the desire to understand the natural world, the creativity to design novel experiments, and the skepticisms to analyze results. However, each of us are multidimensional human beings with different identities, skills, and interests. Now, more than ever, it is important to celebrate these differences, to embrace that there is richness and value in diversity. When we do not understand someone, we must defer to our scientific inquiry and ask why instead of making assumptions. We must seek to understand others with an open mind and listen. Scientists stand not only on the shoulders of giants, but also on each other's shoulders. So that just really uh, kind of gives you an insight into how amazing this project is. And we really encourage you uh, to go check it out as well. So head to our show notes where we've also linked uh, this project, which you can also download for free from Two Photon Art. Today we're reading about Mary Agnes Chase, a botanist and suffragist. Mary Agnes Chase was a tiny woman with a fighting spirit. She was born in 1869 and grew up in Chicago. She started working after finishing grammar school in order to help her family, but in her spare time, she enjoyed learning about botany. She would go on trips to sketch plants and used her small savings to take a few botany classes at the University of Chicago in the Lewis Institute. Her informal education also included working with botanist Reverend Ellsworth Jerome Hill. He mentored Mary, and in exchange, she illustrated plants for his papers. Her impressive sketchbooks got her a part-time job at the Chicago Field Museum of Natural History, where she was the scientific illustrator for a few of the museum's publications. Mary figured out how to use a microscope and do technical drawings on the job. With her new skills, Mary became a full-time illustrator for the United States Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, in 1903. At the USDA, Mary worked as assistant to the botanist Albert Hitchcock. Together, they took on the task of collecting and classifying grasses in North and South America until his death in 1935, when she became the senior botanist in charge of systematic agristology. Unlike her male colleagues, Mary was often denied funding to travel, but, not content to just stay in the lab, she traveled all over the United States and South America, even if it meant paying her own way. Mary discovered thousands of new species of grasses from around the world and authored and co-authored many books on those plants. Mary called grass the plant that holds the soil, and she was able to figure out which grasses were the best to feed livestock. With Albert Hitchcock, she studied commercially developed grass strains to make sure that they were as advertised. A lot of today's food has been informed by Mary's important research. Mary was also a suffragist. She protested for women's right to vote in the United States, even when the USDA threatened to fire her. She bravely participated in the 1918 hunger strike, in which she was jailed and force-fed. Her sacrifices helped gain women the right to vote in 1920. 
Mary continued to work for the USDA until she retired in 1939. She was an honorary curator for the Smithsonian up until her death in 1963. Her research was left to the Smithsonian, where it continues to be used. So for our interview today, we are both really excited. This is uh, what we consider a big get for our podcast <laughs> and like a uh, dream guest that we really expected we would never get. So we are super excited that we got to talk to Georgia Lupi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this interview was a dream come true. Georgia Lupi is absolutely a role model and just an incredible uh person in the field of data visualization and I've been following her work online for so long and have been so excited to see all of her new projects and to actually get to talk to her uh, was incredible. It also just goes to show that um, you can email anybody and maybe they'll say yes in the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Georgia Lupi is an award-winning information designer. She co-founded Accurate, a data-driven design firm with offices in Milan and New York where she is the creative director. After receiving her master's in architecture, she earned a PhD in design at Politecnico di Milano. Her work is part of the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art, where in 2017 she had also been commissioned an original site-specific art piece. Her TED Talk on her humanistic approach to data has over 1 million views. She is co-author of Dear Data and of the new interactive book Observe, Collect, Draw, a visual journal. She recently joined MIT Media Labs as a director's fellow, and she lives in New York. Thank you, Georgia, so much uh, for joining us today. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, we are huge fans of your work. Um, but before we get into the interview, we have a question that we ask every scientist who comes on the podcast. So we're, we're trying to break down some perceptions about what people think a typical scientist is. Um, and oftentimes people think that they're all just like an old white man wearing a, a lab coat. Um, and so as a scientist and as a data visualization-ist, uh, I guess, uh, do you wear a lab coat in your everyday life? Well, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure for, uh, it's just really such a pleasure to be here. I do not wear a lab coat. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So you do data visualization can, and information design. Can you kind of explain what that is and what that means to you, to our listeners? Sure. Um, so I work in the space of data visualization, both as a designer and as an artist. Mm -hmm. And data visualization is both an art and a science. Uh, mm -hmm. it, has, it is viewed as a branch of uh, statistics, statistics by some, but also as a modern equivalent of visual communication. So in general, it is the definition of a set of rules and parameters and techniques to communicate data or information by encoding it as a visual object. It's really the visual representation of data. And this can be done for many purposes, for analytical specific tasks, such as, I don't know, making comparisons and understanding casualty, but also for looking at patterns and understanding the behavior of a large data set, but also for seeing your data as a visual ecosystem as opposed to a tab. And thus for this reason, being able to understand more and take more informed decisions. Mm -hmm. And so would you say that you have uh, a specific theory that guides your work um, through data visualization? Yeah, at this point, yeah. Uh, what I say when I describe my practice in research, and then we can go really um, 
deeper in that later, mm -hmm. is that I am an information designer and artist advocating for what I call data humanism. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I say that mostly as an artist, primarily I use data as a tool, as a lens to better understand our human nature. That is what interests me as an artist. And so I do so by let's say, capturing and distilling our personal experiences, our lives, our behaviors, our thoughts, uh, one subject at a time into what we so coldly call data, and then by actively building my data set. And in this way, I use data as a lens to hopefully discover overlooked details or even really grasping some glimpses of humanity that will be missed if you, um, if you don't pay closer attention to this world of data. But also, and this is more of my design job and as an, as an entrepreneur, because I also work uh, on my own company, every time that I am presented with data, so every time that I encounter a data set uh, for my clients or for my design job, I try to humanize it. I try to make it speak our language and really represent our human nature. And I do so by often uh, combining what is already in the form of data, you know, what is already in tabs and spreadsheet with layer of software and more um, qualitative information that, for this reason, can render the the more nuanced and therefore human aspects of us. And in general, I design data-driven narratives that are uh, very handcrafted, detail-oriented, laborious, and, and in this case, also, you know, inevitably more human in the process. Mm -hmm. And just to give you a, a, a very, very quick um, view of why I do... I do feel that data humanism is something that is guiding my work. It really comes from the from the realization that data is never the point. It's never that we work with data because we want to work with data. But data is only and always just a, a tool that we have to abstract our realities and to describe our realities. And sometimes when working with data, we tend to forget it and to get, to get tangled up in the numbers, in the categories, and in the technology without you know realizing that always, always data represents as human beings. Yes. Yeah. And I think that your projects have done such a beautiful job of that, um, of, you know, storytelling and finding the human experience. Oh, thank you. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of your previous projects and how they have sure. encompassed this work? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I also need to say that in my day job, besides my more artistic and exploratory practice, I run a data visualization design company that is called Accurate, where we are a team of around 35 between designers, developers, and data scientists. And uh, our main office is in Milan, which is my own country. I'm Italian, if you didn't get the accent yet. <laughs> Uh, but now also uh, we have a, a small office in New York where I live. And so with Accurate, we are not expert in any specific field of application, but we do work with a variety of different clients from uh, clients in the IT, healthcare, finance, and with many nonprofits and organizations. Every time um, making creating tools and visualizations that make data accessible to our clients, both to internal and external audiences, really through data visualization. So this is what I do with my team of designers and developers over the years. And uh, I feel that like the project that I'm probably most known for is uh, also uh, what became my first book that is called Dear Data. Mm -hmm. That is a collaboration with an information, another information designer. Um, her name is Stephanie Pozovic, and I'll invite everyone to check her mm -hmm. work because she's really talented as well. And um, we both, when we met, we met at this amazing conference that I always speak at that is called IO in Minneapolis, which is a data art and data visualization conference. And when we met there, we discovered that we have so many personal and, and, and 
work type of similarities. We were both the same age, both expats. She's an American and she lives in London. I'm an Italian and I live in New York and really so many other, both of the children seemingly lived parallel lives. But also, most importantly, we both work worked with data in a very handcrafted way, preferring drawing as opposed to coding as our entry point to get to know our numbers and really sketching with data a lot to get close to the natures of the numbers. And we we were you know really struck by all of that, and we decided to to really try to experiment uh, on this more human side of data through uh, around one main question. Is it possible to get to know another human being through data only? And then when we went back to our home, our separate ways, we started a year-long project called Dear Data, where every weekend for one year, we would collect our personal data, both separately, around weekly shared mundane topic from our complaints to the sounds of our surroundings mm -hmm. to uh, the relationship with our partners, adding a lot of details about the context of these actions. And so not only counting, for example, the number of complaints, but really understanding every time what was the complaint about or, you know, who we were complaining to. And then at the end of the week, since we, um, uh, we wanted to experiment also with this worm uh, technique to visualize data, we would uh, hand drawn our visualization of our weekly data into a postcard where the front would be the data drawing and the back would be the address of the other person and the legend and we would send this postcard back and forth from London to New York into New York um, and from New York to London for one year really painting over 52 weeks and 52 topics a portrait of the other person through this like worm and very analog data and I feel that this is a project that also shaped and that was like back in 2014 what now I call data humanism, and it really changed my perspective of data. Also because the project has been incredibly well received and it got pretty pretty viral for like outside the data community as well, which is something that made me realize that really data is not interesting or boring or big or small per se, but it's only really just a, a medium that we have to talk about our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a really beautiful idea. You know, I think often we think that data is like uh, stuck just for statistics and like a, a small group of experts. Um, and I think that your data was a really great way of showing how you can incorporate it into your everyday life and it can inform you and inform your friendships. And it's like really a personal practice just beyond uh, uh, like a big data type idea. Yeah. In line with like these theories that are guiding your work, um, what's the motivation behind like these projects that you take on and what motivates uh, what you're currently working on and also where you're interested in going uh, in the future? Yeah, that's such a good question. I um, Over time, I realized that I'm really mainly motivated by two um, things that are, first of all, creating. I mean, I feel that I don't know if I know what my life purpose mm -hmm. is, but I know that I do take a lot of pleasure in creating and making things that then are out in the world. And uh, not necessarily for, let's say, visibility purpose, but really for knowing as a human being that I'm making and I'm experimenting. And uh, for me, then besides my day job that is still working with data visualization, but more directing a team of people and working digitally most of the time, 
still uh, the making in a, in a very analog way and more crafty way, it gives me really, really a lot of pleasure. And then as a human being, again, uh, I, I've always been endlessly fascinated by, how, by our human nature, by you know, what makes us who we are, what makes us stick, what our, what our obsessions and passion are, and, you know, how we interact with each other and how we uh, investigate our minds. This is something that, I mean, even with my friends, I could go <laughs> on and talking forever. And so when with Dear Data, I found, you know, really this way of, in, in, a, in a sense, merging my two passions. And so the work with, again, what we so-called we call data and the work that was more artistic and uh, was helping me to create artifacts every week. So that type of creation that was using data as a material to craft stories from our lives gave me um, the motivation to also keep on pursuing artistic projects outside my day job. And really, I, I pretty much work all the time. I mean, I don't, I don't believe a lot in work-life balance <laughs> if you feel that what you're doing is something that motivates you a lot. And so yeah. uh, besides my day job, I, I work um, I work a lot and also on artistic projects. I've recently, um, what well, recently that was like the end of 2017 and beginning of 2018, I had a um, I did a hand-drawn data visualization at the Museum of Modern Art that was the closing piece of an amazing exhibition on fashion where Paolo Antonelli, the, uh, the, the senior curator of design and architecture at MoMA, put together this show called Items, Is Fashion Modern? Curating a list of 111 garments uh, uh, and accessories that uh, really shaped our um, collective uh, uh, vision of fashion and really pieces that influence the way that we behave, the way we think about ourselves. And even there, uh, and I'm, I'm getting, I mean, this is an intro to get it, to get to the sense that I'm really pretty much always working. Even in that piece, I really didn't have any data, but I went to read the list of the 111 items uh, and, and all of the curatorial material that was put together for the show. And I found my questions uh, to then create a data set that could possibly highlight for the visitors some, um, you know, hidden aspect of the acquisition of the ecosystem of fashion as we relate as individuals to them. And yeah, I mean, I had this like amazing opportunity to create a very uh, a site-specific hand-drawn visualization of that closing the exhibition. But I did that on my only uh, two weeks of vacation uh, last year when I was uh, with my husband. <laughs> yeah, in a, in, a, in a seaside place in the Bermudas. And uh, yeah, I remember that. I mean, at, at the very end, I felt like, well, now I need a vacation, but still I'm very, uh, you know, I'm sort of like really motivated by, by, by creating every time that there's something that excites me. Mm. What has your journey looked like through the field of data visualization? Yeah, um, well, it depends on how far back in time we want to start because I, I, <laughs> I realized, and this is like in retrospect, that I've always been a data collector. When I was a mm. kid, like three, four, six years old, I would spend a lot of time um, in my grandmother's seamstress, she was a seamstress, so she had a tailor shop, and I would uh, reorganize all of her buttons, ribbons, and threads into colors and sizes and categories that then I would also, like, draw a tiny label uh, to mm -hmm. illustrate to her how she, you know, she she could read my organization. I mean, that drove her crazy because she had her own very you know, uh, organized way to, to have her, um, all of her possessions. But that to me was really a lot of pleasure. And I remember that I really started to get interested in how 
by sizes, by colors, and by different features. So for example, if a button had two holes or four holes, we can categorize things and make order and make sense. And so, mm-hmm. and, and then at the same time, I've always been very, as, as most kids are, I, I, was, I was always drawing. I really was always drawing. So I feel that already uh, there was this two component. And then when I studied for college, I didn't know that data visualization was a thing. And even back in Italy at this time, I, I just, you know, didn't know that data visualization was even a discipline. So my master mm-hmm. is in architecture. That again was a sort of like a, a non-choice because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to merge the need for numbers and scientific organizations to the to my need for expressing myself creatively and architecture at the time felt the right way to do but then you know as I was studying I was much more interested in for example all of the areas of studies of architecture that uh, dealt with urban mapping and so the city the level of the city and using really the city as a as a as a lens of, of information, you know, about all the things that were happening there, and even my master thesis project was definitely an information design um, project. Mm-hmm. And without getting into the depth of what I did after, but then I got very interested in the representation of information. I worked at a different interaction design firms um, until I finally started my data visualization design company with two partners, um, and then I also studied uh, for my PhD. As I was doing, uh, as I was already um, starting accurate, mm-hmm. so again, really pretty much working and studying twenty four seven. I started my PhD exactly in communication design on a specific lab in Milan Polytechnico that um, uh, focuses on data visualization. Mm-hmm. And after that, again, I feel that in the very beginning, everything, even with accurate, was very manual, and we would work on mostly editorial projects. Then, as we started to hire developers, we started to work on more interactive experiences and tools. And that was also the moment when I needed to go back to the making. And so, as I started to direct more and sketch and design less, in order to keep a fresh eye on what we were doing and in order to find a vision to motivate my team, I sort of like needed to get back to making and to um, asking myself what data really is and uh, how uh, it can be, um, you know, again, not, not the point of what we do, but a medium that we have to understand our lives and tell stories. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've had quite the, I don't know, not a straight line path for sure to get to where you are. Um, <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you have advice for someone who is interested in maybe following in your footsteps and is interested in the field of data visualization, what your advice would be to somebody starting in this field? Yeah, well, now uh, there are many university universities that integrate data visualizations as part of their courses, both on the design field and on the computer science field. So I'd say that there are actually right now really places where you can study to become a data visualization designer. But I would also suggest everybody who's interested to start making things, to start incorporating data, even small data in in their observations, in their graphic design projects, and start to create little rules on how to use any type of quantitative parameter as an element to inform visual representations. I also always really suggest to make space for personal projects. We're all busy, but I would really encourage anyone who can 
make the time, like not find the time. This is something that I borrow from my friend and the, uh, another very, very talented podcast interviewer, Debbie Millman. She uh, runs the Design mm-hmm. Matters uh, podcast. And she always says that we need to make the time and not to find the time, which I find really interesting. So really to make the time um, to do some unnecessary creating. And I think that it, it helps you build a portfolio that you want to be hired for. Um, and it can give you this pace for experimenting. And again, even like a small graphic design project can incorporate a data set on uh, climate change, a data that you collect, data set that you collect from your life. Mm. It, you can really start small. And well, our next book that will be out in the fall, and this is not for making <laughs> promotions, but it's mm-hmm. to say there are so many, so, so many of these um, type of resources that you can uh, that you can look at. Our next book, it, uh, it will be a journal for people to learn small how to work with data in a creative way without being a statistician or a programmer or even like a designer or an artist. And in general, I mean, there are, and we can talk about the pioneers in our field, but like now on the most contemporary side, there are amazing uh, Skillshare classes. So for example, by Nicholas Felton, there's another podcast that I would recommend everybody to listen to that is called Data Stories. Um, you can look for Alberto Cairo's books and tutorials. And in general, I would also say, look at data visualization artists and designers that inspire you and really dig into the work, understand how they use data to make art and design projects, and then just start making. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that answer too, because it's so open right? Like really yeah. anybody can, anybody can start somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What are your hopes for the future of women in data visualization? I have to say that our field, data visualization being not so strictly scientific already sees a lot of women succeeding. And there are many women among the top data visualization people in the world. Um, also, the community around data visualization and data art is pretty young. So I guess that for this reason is way more open than maybe in other scientific disciplines. So it's really, it's not a field dominated by old men like it might happen in other disciplines. And also events and conferences are paying a lot of attention in our field uh, to being inclusive these days. And I think it's playing off really well because you see a lot of talent emerging and I I just really hope that we will keep the spirit and the the other thing that I need to say to frame uh, to frame it is that as always you can approach data visualization as a discipline coming from the computer science side and or the design and art side and many of the women in the field that I know come from the design side where you know traditionally genders are more balanced Mm -hmm. than in computer science but I'm also seeing a lot of exceptions maybe also because it is a field that naturally might appeal to the women who are already in computer science and so they gravitate towards data visualization I I mean, in general, I really just hope that we can see many more of us working with data. And um, I notice that sometimes women can bring uh, a lot of empathy and sensibility to uh, to a field that can be perceived as really cold and impersonal to the mm-hmm. field of data. So I just hope to see more and more of this. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, so where can somebody find you if they'd like to go look at all of these projects uh, on your social media and your website? Sure. I'm pretty much everywhere on the internet at georgialupi.com, where Georgia is not as in the state, but it's G-I-O-R-G-I-A, <laughs> Lupi, L-U-P-I. So it's georgialupi.com, uh, at georgialupi on Twitter, at georgialupi on Instagram. I also have um, 
I also use Pinterest a lot to collect my visual inspiration. And so I feel that everybody who wants to start digging into data visualization can also uh, check my Pinterest that I really use to, to collect inspirational uh, work from other folks. So Georgia Lupe everywhere. Perfect. And we'll have everything down in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was really a pleasure. Oh, well, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. Thank you guys. And so one thing also that we didn't really get a chance to chat with in uh, her interview, but we wanted to highlight uh, for our listeners um, was this really incredible project that Georgia uh, worked on, um, which was called Bruises, the Data That We Don't See. And the reason that this really connected with both Corden and I was because it seemed to kind of really blend together our fields and our passions. And so Georgia Lupi and Kaka King collaborated on this project to represent uh, a chronic illness, uh, which was actually Kaki's daughter, uh, to represent what they described as the data we don't see. So it was an art project that represented more of the kind of social side and the impact of chronic illness through this beautiful artistic project. Yeah, and everybody should really see it. It's wonderful. We'll link to the Medium article in our show notes, and we really think that you should pause right now and go um, watch it. And as they explain in their uh, Medium article, they say clinical records alone hardly capture the impact of an illness on a child in a family. So this is how we use music and art to understand and communicate the information that was missing. So one more time, thank you so much, Georgia, for talking with us. Um, It was really an honor. (laughs) All of her information, where you can find her and everything, again, will be linked in the show notes. For our last section, as we look to the future and the next generation of data visualization, uh, we thought it would be really important uh, to look at coding because although uh, George's work was very analog and handcrafted, a lot of data visualization requires uh, digital skills. And so we were really excited to talk to Sasha Ariel Alston. So Sasha is the debut author of the children's book, Sasha Savvy Loves to Code. From Washington, D.C., she is a college student majoring in information systems at Pace University in New York City. With eight successful internships in the tech and business industries, she is a sought-after speaker to encourage youth to explore educational and career opportunities in STEM. She has appeared on Good Morning America, been featured on Forbes, HuffPost, Role Model Magazine, and Black Enterprise. She has inspired girls to dream big in Disney, Google, Snapchat, and Yahoo initiatives. Sasha was also selected as a 2018 Futurist by The Root magazine, one of her campus 22 under 22 inspiring college women, and as a Pace University 30 under 30 difference maker. She talks a lot about her writing experience, her Kickstarter experience, um, and some really cool experiences she's had in, in the tech world. So we hope that you enjoy our interview with Sasha Ariel Alston. Thank you so much, Sasha, for being here with us today. Uh, We're so excited to talk with you. Um, To start, can you give us a brief synopsis of your book? Yes. So my book is Sasha Savvy Loves to Code. And I wrote this book to get girls, um, and especially girls of color, interested in coding. So the book takes place in Washington, D.C. And it's about a 10-year-old African-American girl. And she is trying to decide what she wants to do for um, summer, for the summer, for a summer camp. And so since her mom's a software developer, she kind of persuades Sasha to go to the um, coding camp. 
And it just goes through the life of Sasha and her friends and about whether they um, like coding or not by the end of the day. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what motivated you to write the book? So I was motivated to write the book because um, I attended McKinley Technology High School, which is a STEM-based high school in Washington, D.C. And I didn't become interested in like coding. Even though I took classes, I didn't become interested in it until I had my first internship at Microsoft um, in high school. And so basically, when I had a radio interview, just talking about the STEM internships I had, the interviewer asked, what is coding? And so for, you know, an older person to not really be familiar with coding, it kind of showed me that it was important for me to explain that to other people through um, literacy. Hmm. And so that's kind of where I, probably that day I decided that would be cool to write just a quick children's book. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be a picture book, just like quickly explaining it. But then I um, talked to people and they said it would be great to have mm-hmm. it as a chapter book. Yeah, it's such a important piece of uh, literature. It's so great that we have this. Mm-hmm. So can you expand more on what your journey has been like? Like you said that this idea came in high school. That's so impressive. So what has it mm-hmm. been like from creating this idea or from having this idea to actually holding your physical book? Yeah, so it's been um, a great experience. So I came up with the idea um, April 2015, but I didn't actually publish it until um, June 2017. And so it took me a while to write the book, but since I also had to, um, you know, get editors and do research and all of those things. That's why it kind of took long. Um, But I actually reached out to agents to get a publisher so I could have it published that way versus self-publishing, but I received a lot of rejections. And so because of that, um, I chose to make a Kickstarter to raise money for the funds. And so I reached my goal of 5,000 in four days, and then I um, raised over 17,000 and six hundred dollars at the end and so that was very inspiring because you know at that point I actually didn't have the book out and I needed the money to publish it so the fact that so many people believed in my story and what I was doing to donate even beyond my goal was just like very encouraging for me and it showed me that the book really needed to come out and so I published it June 2017 and just a lot of great things have come out of the book. Um, I've been featured in uh, Huffington Post, Black Enterprise. Um, I was on Good Morning America. I've been in Disney, Google, and Snapchat campaigns to promote mm-hmm. um, STEM. So just like me writing that one book kind of like opened up a lot of doors for me um, that I didn't think that I would, you know, be able to like be in just because just as, you know, like a computer, an information system student. Mm-hmm. So like this book kind of like showed me like so many other opportunities in STEM. Yeah. And what kind of response did you get from the science community specifically? Um, I haven't received that much, um, that much recognition for science specifically, but more so um, technology mm-hmm. just because, you know, um, it's all under mm-hmm. STEM, like people are just interested in general, but I've received like just much more things um, from tech related people. 
And so when I um, put it on, put the Kickstarter on LinkedIn, a lot of different people from Google, um, Facebook, Instagram, like all of the major companies, Apple, they reached out to me and even some of the people donated as well. Wow. That's awesome. And what do you hope that your book can do for the future generation of women in science and technology? Since I wrote this book to get girls um, interested in it and just like general exposure, I think that's kind of um, the most important thing because, you know, you're not going to be interested in something unless you are familiar with it or at least you've heard about it. And so, you know, me just kind of like exposing them to this field kind of shows them that this is something Mm -hmm. else that they can do, whether it's, you know, science, technology, engineering, or math, like just kind of giving them another option versus, you know, just general things of like, you know, Mm -hmm. being a a doctor or a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Another great thing about the book is that in March of this year, it will be translated in Japanese. So I do have a Japan publisher. um, And so that'll be out in a few months. That's amazing. Wow. It is so impressive how many, like, I don't know, doors that you're opening and just seeing the impact that Mm -hmm. this book has had. Like, that's so impressive and it's so cool to see all that you have done and all that you will do. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Because like, just, I never thought of, you know, being an actual author. And even though, you know, I wrote the book, I still kind of forget that I'm an author because I wasn't really thinking of it as, you know, um, like really being a author, but just kind of, explaining mm-hmm. the importance of STEM. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that like I was able to, you know, tie in the liter- literacy um, component and also the tech component and like put them together, mm-hmm. I think that was um, mm-hmm. great. Awesome. So if anyone wants to find your book or follow your journey, um, where can they find all that information? So for Sasha Savvy Loves to Code, you can actually find that um, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And if you would like to like, if you would like to follow my journey, um, you can follow me at the STEM Queen or STEM Queen Academy. And so I do have a um, academy that I'm starting to continue the process of getting girls interested in coding. That's amazing. So what all is, what do you mean by the academy? What all is that? Okay, so I received a $2,500 grant to have a pilot event for this. And so um, it was really just to like expose, you know, girls to what coding is. And so I had about 15 McKinley Technology high school girls, which is the high school that I went to. And so I really explained to all the things that you can do in the tech industry, because a lot of people don't realize that it's not just you know, coding at a computer all day mm-hmm. at a tech company, but you can go into media and entertainment, fashion, just like a lot of different avenues. And so my whole purpose of the event was just trying to like really explain to them all the things that you can do with STEM. And so I, even though my focus is technology, obviously I talk to them about mm-hmm. science, engineering, and math as well. And so one of the big things at the event is, I had like a shark tank kind of Mm -hmm. um, competition. Basically the girls were broken up into teams and they had to 
um, choose a solution for a problem that they wanted to solve in their community or um, their school. And so by the end of the, um, I pro- it was probably about an hour of them of like coming up with the slogan and um, being able to pitch it to us and all those things. And so by the end, I was able to give them um, like prizes for, you know, the person that had the best solution. Amazing. Cool. Yeah. And so like overall, that was just kind of like one day of just exposing it to them. But I do want to have it um, as like weekly sessions, because I think it's important to also teach students and girls about the soft skills, not just um, the tech related skills. And so they need to start somewhere with like being familiar with um, interview, how to talk in an interview and, you know, how you should dress and prepare for your interviews, um, how you should communicate um, through email, just like all of those basic things are important before mm-hmm. you even get into the actual coding mm-hmm. skills. And so that's what I um, mainly want to focus on. And then I'll start adding mm-hmm. like more technical components, but at that um, event, I definitely had us do like hour of code and like um, oh coding God. related activities. So amazing. Wonderful. Great. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sasha, for joining us. Um, we are really excited to have you on. Uh, we'll make sure to link all of your social media and places people can find you down in our show notes. But uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So one more thing before we go, because I always like to tack something on at the end of our episodes, but we have a very exciting announcement. So anyone in Ottawa, Ontario, or the surrounding area, make sure to check your calendars because on Saturday, February 16th, Nicole and I will be doing a live podcast recording at the Canadian Museum of Nature. We are super excited to work with the museum. We're going to be talking to a lot of the women scientists that work right there at the museum. So if you are interested, be sure to follow us on all of our social media where we'll be posting a lot more information and updates. And we hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening to the Super Women in Science podcast. Just a reminder that we're reading from Rachel Ignatowski's book, Women in Science. A huge thank you to our amazing guests, Georgia Lupi and Sasha Ariel Alston. Make sure to follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes to hear our podcast. So search us in the podcast section, download, rate, and subscribe. And leave a review if you really like us. You can find us at Twitter at SuperWomenSci, on Facebook at Superwomen in Science Podcast, or on Instagram at SuperWomenScience. A transcript of this episode and every episode can be found on our website, superwomeninscience.wordpress.com. You can also find all the links um, that we put in the episode as well on the website. So tweet us if you're a data visualization scientist or if you'd like us to talk about your field of science. Thanks, everybody. Selfie. Really busting my butt here, dude. So, Georgia, what are your hopes for the future of women in data visualization? One more time, sorry. (laughs) For our last section, when we look to the future of data visualization. (laughs) I'm so sorry, friend. I said visualization. (laughs) Wait, something's wrong. Stop. Sophie, this is not the time. Sophie. 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 What are you doing? I'm reading. I'm going to read to you then. Bye. (laughs) Keep that one just for myself. I also started, like, scratching my body while I was talking so you can, like, hear the noise. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. Underrepresented it. Ooh. Mary discovered thousands of new species of...
Sophie. What are you doing? I'm recording. Sophie. Two minutes and I'll come pet you. Two minutes. Two minutes and I'll come pet you. You gotta get away from the microphone. No one wants to listen to your butt. So it was Chris, uh, so it was Chris, oh my god. Okay, so I'm afraid about this Italian coming up. So. White women, the right <laughs> I did a buy that like had vibrato. <laughs> MMT. It kind of sounds like a like, like a world wrestling like acronym, you know? Oh no, friend, are you still here? 